Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast, and thank you again for your questions. We have a little bit of a theme today. We're talking about multiples. It's interesting for you folks that are listening in from abroad. You may not know that here in Ontario, uh, back in the late 30s, I believe, uh, we had the Dion quintuplets. And at the time, that was quite amazing that these five twins would all survive. And in fact, it's a terrible tragedy because the Ontario government took these children away from their parents and turned them into a tourist attraction. So you could drive to North Bay, Ontario and go to their house and they would be marched around in their little matching outfits out in the play yard and tourists would pay a price to come gawk at them. And uh, yeah, apparently the government made like $5 million uh, and there was all kinds of lawsuits later and, and whatnot. But but also interesting because we really didn't know what to do with quintuplets. I don't know if it was the government. I can't imagine that the Dion family did, but Adler was actually flown over. Alfred Adler was flown over from Vienna and g- given advice anyways to, um, you know, how do we go about raising quintuplets? And there was a misunderstanding in the information because of his um, lack of English. But he was trying to, to let them know that they needed to be treated as individuals, that they should not be dressed up in the same outfits, that they needed to be allowed to develop their own unique personality and differences. And, uh, and that, was, that was misunderstood. 
And so, uh, because back in the day, of course, they, that was novel to, to, if you had twins, you would, or triplets, which is much more common, you would have dressed them in the same outfits and um, uh, treated them quite similarly. So let's go on to our questions now <laughs> after this terrible legacy. All right. So um, again, keeping these anonymous. Uh, Hi, Allison. I have identical twin girls who are eight. When we are out in public at the park or the mall, when we went to the mall with a frowny face, I guess this is pre-COVID, uh, people often stare at them. Often it's other kids. My question has to do with how to handle attention from strangers regarding their twinness in a polite, lighthearted way while still maintaining their right to not always enjoy unwanted attention. In the past, I've explained that people are curious and it's not meant to be rude, but it still bothers them. Thanks for your insights. I always learn something new from your podcast videos. Have a great day. So so thank you for that. And of course, so here we are talking about gawking at the, can you imagine what the Dion quintuplets felt like if your kids just feel it at the um, at the mall? I quite like your answer, actually, that I don't really think that as a parent, we can go out to strangers and to the greater world and say, please don't look at my children. Um, I think we have to prepare our kids for how they interact with the public that might be looking at them. And to your point, why are they looking at them? Just they're curious. They're interested. You look the same. That's that's something that's not part of their experience. And so I, I think that's a really great lighthearted answer. I mean, I, I guess if they were... If you were feeling that something was crossing a boundary, of course, we have a, a need to want to speak up and protect our kids. I mean, I, I, you could say something polite like, you know, I wonder if you knew that you were staring. And I'm sure people would be like, oh, oh gosh, 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 I'm sorry, you know. But I, again, just thinking of it from a, from a protection point of view, it it's never really about the environment. It's what the children make of the environment. There, your, yours say that that still bothers them, but that's a choice. I, there's other people who get looks and stares, people with really curly hair. Or I had glasses when I was a little kid, so that got me some extra attention. Um, I gave a keynote at the Little People of Ontario at their annual conference last year, and the parents were talking about the fact that often um, people that have dwarfism and uh, also people look and 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 ha they're again curious, not trying to be mean, but it means that you're catching the eye of the public. And with that population, they said often it takes it they just it, don't realize that they're different from other people at that point in their life. They just have a childhood where they're just a lot of people make eye contact with them. And usually they are positive about that, you know, that I'm being noticed and I'm interesting and, and people talk to me and I'm worthy of, of, uh, of a glance. And so it's really more about the child's own subjective interpretation. And, well, you know, you could say, I'm, I'm sorry it bothers you, but it's no harm is really intended. I think you're handling it just just perfectly, but certainly do not worry. Do not worry about how it um, it shapes them. I think if I think if I was going to worry about it, I'd worry more about the you know the the curly haired blonde with the blue eyes that everyone says, "Oh, look at that hair," or "Look at those beautiful eyes." And when people make comments like that, sometimes we do get a child who ends up interpreting that as as being that they are special or that their uh, value and their worth is somehow connected to to their looks and that's not a healthy life script so we don't really want to elevate people to being special and certainly not around their external values of of their aesthetics of their of their hair and their eye color uh, so those people I usually might say something like you know and they have a beautiful heart, right? <laughs> or something to just kind of give them like a little nudge and usually people catch on when you give that little correction. All right, next question. 
Hi, Allison. I attended your recent webinar at my workplace, and it was so helpful and informative. Thank you so much for coming to speak. So, by the way, people, if ever you're looking for uh, webinars and and support, speak to your HR people. I'd love to present. I'm a mom to five-year-old twin boys, and I have a few questions that hoping that you have advice for. I know with twins and for families with more than one child in general, it's good to spend one-on-one time with each child on a daily basis if possible. This was difficult before the pandemic, and now it's near impossible. Do you have any tips or recommendations on how to do this? Mine are both very competitive and are constantly taking over the other trying to get my attention trying to be first at whatever is going on and getting upset at the other. I know this is in part due to me not giving them enough individual attention. Uh, Thanks for taking time to read my email, and I look forward to hearing from you. Well, I think this idea of individual time is something that is a bit of a modern invention. And I don't know if it came from attachment theory. Somehow we all got really nervous about the quality of the relationship. And and don't get me wrong, strong attachments and, and strong bonds and strong relationships are super important. But we seem to think they take maybe more work than they really do. And if we were going to um, think about how we parent in modern families, that we would do better if we thought less individualistically, which is our cultural slant to think of the individual, and instead to think more collectively, and that we have better outcomes when we take a collectivist view, um, because we're social creatures and we want to belong in the group. And so there's less competition and more psychological security when you feel that you are amongst, when you find your place in the group amongst others, rather than vying and competing uh, for that parental attention, which seems to be kind of going on with these ones. So yes, you want to have individual time in the sense that you want to have, especially with twins, because they're comparable. They want to find their own unique place in the family, how they differ from each other. And you have a different relationship with each of those kids, just the same way that a child has a different relationship with their mom than they do with their other parent, whether that's another mom or or another dad. And so it's a different relationship. It's a different person. And so, yes, you want to invest in each of the relationships, and and, uh, that's important. And to, to have small little moments together, you'll inevitably find something in common or some hobby or something that you share, little special handshakes, little pet names. We like to bake cookies. Somebody else might like to shoot basketball hoops, whatever it might be. So yeah, you're going to find little things that you like to do with each of your kids. But I wouldn't want you to feel that you need to carve out something whereby one child is is feeling that this afternoon is is excluded. Like this is uh, that every day I must spend X amount of time with this child and X amount of time with that child because that sets up a comparison. And in that comparison of, you know, well, you know, did you spend 25 minutes or was it 27? You spent more time with me. That makes it measurable and the measurable invites comparison. So when we go to a more abundance model and just sort of say, hey, you know, I love spending time with everybody. I like doing everything. Let's do everything together. Um, Yes, right now I'm reading a story with your brother, but if you'd like to have a story, we'll find time for you too. But I don't want them to become like bean counters. That's the part where where we're getting into the the scarcity and the comparison. And we we really don't need to. That, you know, in this family, we have enough love and time to go around. And uh, and I think the more things that we do together, I think that need, needs to be emphasized. That in fact, in most modern families, the thing that's lacking is all together family time. 
we seem to do a lot of one-on-one time. Like you take her to ballet, you tuck him in, you give him a bath. We do a lot of one-on-one time. We don't do very much just the whole family hanging around, you know, whatever, playing ping pong. (laughs) So I hope that that answered your question. You did ask me another question about allowance, and I'm going to save that for a future episode because I I think I'll stick with her uh, with this pack of uh, multiple questions. Uh, Let's see here. Hi, Allison. I just discovered your podcast. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I saw on Spotify questions can be mailed, and I'm hoping I can catch up on the next episode for answers. I've been searching for an Adlerian-based parenting course, yay, but can't find anything locally. I will be offering some stuff online. I can get you some resources. And Pep also has some great online stuff. I'll put a link in the show. Uh, So I was very excited for finding your podcast. I have two 0.5-year-old triplet girls. They are wonderful little girls, and my husband and I are usually quite calm people, (laughs) but but, uh, are finding ourselves quite frustrated and irritable lately. Meal times are particularly trying. Today, two of the girls kept climbing up on the table. We took them down about 10 times. They thought it was hilarious. We've tried rationalizing, explaining the risk of falling, asking why they are doing this, etc., but no success. I feel we just need to ignore this behavior completely, but also ensure they are safe. Any suggestions? Another is mealtime. Sometimes they're so distracted and continuously leaving the table. I feel I should just take the food away, but what? But then I know they are hungry and distracted, so want them to eat. How should I best manage this? I look forward to your tips. Thank you. So, you know, really, these are problems that you would have even if you had a single child crawling on the table, distracted and walking away from the table. But it's ex- it's amplified because when you have multiples, they they can kind of gang up on parents. You know, two, I remember my uh, co-host from the parenting show, Jennifer, who had twins, would say, two can do together what one cannot do alone. And, uh, and they will kind of create an alliance and they can actually bond and get attention from one another, not just the parents. So the usefulness or the goal of the behavior might be a little bit different when you have when you have twins. And of course, when one is doing it and they see that it's getting you engaged, the second one says, oh, well, that's working for my sibling. Let me give that a try. And then you start feeling like you're just herding kittens in a bag <laughs> and then it's, it's, it's endless. So a couple things that we can try here. You are right on the money that if we're saying, what's the usefulness? I do think they are keeping you busy with them. And so we can just at this age, we want to teach them that it's not safe to crawl on the table. So yes, you can put them down, but if they're crawling right back up, um, you might take away their chair so that they don't have access. You know, if if you can't put your bum on the seat of the chair and you use it as a ladder to get to the table, then that tells me that you can't use the chair properly and we'll need to put the chair away and I might push it away. Or I might say, if you'd like to be in the dining area with the table, you need to show me that you can keep your feet on the floor. If we have trouble keeping the feet on the floor, then we won't use this area. And maybe at this age, I don't, my kids used a little picnic table for, for meals for the longest time. It was just it was just easier. And certainly, if you do find that they've pulled the chair over and you've got to put them down, I think to your point, if we have to keep them safe, so yes, put them down. But we want to do it with the least amount of verbal talking, the, the, the smallest reaction, just respond to the needs of the situation to get them to safety, but don't put any more energy in uh, behind it. And I know that it's hard when they're distracted and leaving the table and you're worried that they're not going to get supper in them. But I promise you at two and a half, if you start this at breakfast and you say, if you get down from the table and you start to play, that tells me you're finished the meal and you pop away their breakfast, they might get hungry, 
but you're having snack in two hours. So how hungry are they going to be? You can just tell them, rub your tummy. I'm sorry, I know you're hungry. Snack time feels like a long time away. That's why we need to make sure that we eat our meals during mealtime. But by the time snack comes, if, if they get up from snack time, you take away their granola bar. If they get up at lunch, you take away their soup. If you keep doing it, by the time you get to supper, first of all, They've already eaten 90% of their calories by dinner, but they've probably figured on to the new limit and boundary that you've set, the new consequence. They're they're fast to learn. They really are. And um, and so they'll realize, if, you know, if I want to get something in my belly, I better I better stay put. So I think you uh, I think your intuition around this was just bang on the money. I think you just wanted to like run it past to to make sure that you were on the right track. So good for you. And I think you'll find lots more uh, good Adlerian information if you find some some other online resources, um, full full classes for that age group. Then she raised, sorry, Allison, we have another question. Toilet training. We started in May just after the, their second birthday. This is the same person. Um, because the girls were, and I, I, I'm not sure that this was the right word, but I can't figure out what it's supposed to be. Um, we started in May just after second birthday because the girls were firing their wet nappies around the place. I think that's a sign. Does that mean they're taking them off and whipping them around, taking them off when they're wet? I'm guessing that's what she means. It's been a long process, and two and three are doing very well. One, however, is still having accidents every day. She appears to understand, but seems to protest at times when she is not getting her way. For example, this evening, she wanted to undress downstairs before her bath. My husband took off her clothes and tried to coax her upstairs. He was trying also to bring some clothes up and the other two children. So you can imagine the juggling of all these people. So he went ahead slightly. She then stopped and peed at the top of the stairs. There seems to be an attention-seeking pattern. We'd love your tips on how best to manage this. <laughs> um, I look forward to tuning in next week. You just started today's episode on my way home from work, and I think I found my new favorite podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, so I would say that since you started party training just after their second birthday, if we're going to look at this developmentally, you're still pretty much on the young side of where biologically kids are. You're absolutely right that there are signs of readiness, including being uncomfortable in a wet diaper. So that is one sign. But there are other signs as well. We're looking for a dry diaper, so showing that they've got enough control, muscle control, bladder control to hold. We want to see that retention piece happening. And then we want to see something that is indicating that they are aware that they're holding and need to pee. So you might want to see like the little pee-pee dance or they might grab their, their diaper with their hand. You want to see something that's giving them some recognition that they're listening to their body and they're noticing those signals. And they have to be not just biologically ready, they also have to be psychologically ready. And it's not uncommon for kids to be really super excited when you first introduce the idea. And they might even be successful for a little bit, but then they're, they're not really interested in training. It takes too long. They'd rather play. So if they lose interest they lose motivation. You just have to go with the flow. You got to go back to, to wherever they are. Meet the child where the child is when it comes to potty training. Because if you start getting into power struggles and you start locking horns with them, then that's when we start to get the protest. And I'm wondering if this one person here, it's it's in relation to she peed when, when he didn't slow down and wait for her and she wanted to demand her clothes off and to do it her way. And these are really demanding things. And when she didn't get her way, I think that that peeing at the top of the stairs was a bit retaliatory. So when we look at our goals of misbehavior, we look at one of four it's either attention, power, revenge, or avoidance. Avoidance is a pretty big, discouraged kid that happens later, closer to, to 
more the 10-year-old mark. So mostly we're looking at attention, power, and revenge. And revenge happens sometimes when people lose power struggles. So it's a little bit of a tit for tat. Like, you might have won this one, but I got you on that one. You'll pay the price for that if you're not going to listen to me. So I'm not sure if it was revenge. If it was, you would feel kind of hurt by it. But if it's power, you would feel more like stymied. It's more like the, it's more like you're in a, um, in a tug of war with her and each person is kind of upping the other person. Like, you know, I'm not going to carry your clothes. Well, you're not going to let me go. Well, when I get to the top of the stairs, I'm going to pee. Like, is it part of the, was it part of the escalation or was it retaliatory revenge? I'm not sure. But what, regardless, we don't want to win power struggles and, um, and we want to try to return responsibility to the child as much as possible. And uh, and not lock horns with her. Don't don't get into that contest of power. She wants to be self determined. So the general rule is we control the situation, not the child. And so that might be something like in the case of potty training, I would just slow things right down and just say, hey, you know what? When you're interested in potty training, we'll try again. You know your body. You know best when you'd like to try. And I would give her those. Um, I'd give her diapers back and just. Don't talk about it. Just revisit this a little bit later. And the same with where she wanted to get dressed, maybe somehow in the coaxing or being left behind and things not going her way. I might just give her lots of encouragement. Well, you can decide for you. You can dress downstairs or upstairs. You can come with us. You can come at your own time. But I wouldn't do any coaxing or or urging. And finding other ways for her to be empowered. You know, at, at a young age, we want to give them as, as much autonomy and those skills as as possible. So lots of choice, lots of choice. Don't don't force her compliance. We're going to stand back and let those things happen uh, kind of at her own pace. And and hang in there. That's a lot of a lot of kids to get upstairs to the bath. I'm <laughs> I'm sure you're tired. All right. And then I have one more which is not about twins, but um this was actually the first question that came in this week and so I wanted to answer this in a timely fashion. And this is a mom who's got a 10-year-old daughter. And she said, during the pandemic, my 10-year-old daughter has actively pulled away from all of her friends. I understand Zoom fatigue, but in the nice weather, she wouldn't meet up with them outside. Early on, she said she didn't want to see anyone if she couldn't hug them. But um, it's more than that now. She's gone back in her memory and come up with examples from long ago of isolated incidences with her closest friends that demonstrate that they are mean to build her case for not wanting to see anyone. Her two closest buddies are great kids from amazing families. We are back in in-person school and she has no close friends from last year in her class, but has made a couple of new friends. With cohorts, she can't really play with or visit her crew from last year. I've told the parents of her two dearest pals that we just aren't doing play dates right now and for the last number of months, but it's actually starting to really worry me that she's going to end up friendless, wanting to plan a birthday party next year with no one to invite. She won't reply to text messages or the likes and refuses all sorts of video contact, refuses park meetups, etc. Do I let this ride? Do I push her to see them and hope it helps her to realize that being with people will feel good? Help. Okay. So I don't know why she decided that these um, friends from the past were not friends that she wants to continue because she clearly knows how to make friends and how to interact with friends because she's made two new ones. So she doesn't seem to be disclosing to you why that friendship is something she's not investing in, but your worry that she's going to be friendless is not 
holding up to the data you shared with me that said she's actually made a couple of new friends. And so I don't, um, I, I'm, if she can make friends and uh, I, you could check in with the teacher and see how she's doing socially in the classroom. But I think she's just changing up her friend group. And, um, and that's okay. She's going to have a lot of friends. It may be more embarrassing for you if you really love the parents. Sometimes we, we grieve the loss of the friendship because we, they could be family friends. And, uh, and we know them and we've kind of already vetted them and we feel they're good influences or whatever. But that's our agenda. We can't push our agenda on our kids. And we can't pretend to know what, you know, what makes her tick socially. And so, uh, so who knows? She might find that these other two close buddies are really tight and she feels like a third wheel. She might feel like in that group, she's sort of the lowest person on the totem pole and that doesn't feel as good as maybe with these new friends where she feels it's a little more egalitarian or maybe she's a little bit more of the ringleader. I don't know the answers, but I'm just giving you some ideas of what goes on in the interplay with, with friendships. So I wouldn't uh, get ahead of yourself with the worrying. Certainly when we're... Um, there are years where we're between friends, and this is a hard year to to meet new people, but she has. So there's a difference between having a gap between making your next group of friends and somebody who has social problems and can't make or keep friends, in which case we, then we have a concern. Then we have to do some, some extra additional uh, social skills training to help them because we all need to have friends. But So uh, don't get ahead of yourself. Sounds like she's doing okay. Check in with the teacher because they watch for social skills and they kind of know how they're adjusting socially. And it sounds like those two kids are in their cohort, so why don't you invite a play date with those two? How about that? Okay. Well, folks, I've enjoyed my time with you again. Thank you always for the questions. Send in your next ones, and I will keep hunting down some interesting interviews with other experts for you as well. All the best. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.